Data visualization is a skill that's becoming increasingly important in fields as wide-ranging as education, medicine, and journalism. It's also something that can seem incredibly complicated and intimidating. The fear factor around creating visualizations can obscure the long history of their use. People like W.E.B. Du Bois and Florence Nightingale created data visualizations that don't look all that different from ones we might see today. The arguments made by such visualizations is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away today. Our guest is Allison Headley. Headley is a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, postdoctoral fellow at McGill University. Her current research addresses the history of data visualization in popular journalism, focusing especially on Victorian and Edwardian Britain. She recently authored an article for Significance magazine about Florence Nightingale's forays into data visualization. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We've talked a lot about Nightingale's statistical work over the last year or so, but one thing that you know people haven't quite nailed for me is what makes her data visualizations so compelling? Why do we still talk about them? Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that I talk about in that article is the she had such a keen sense of how to make a visual argument that would re- that would reach our audiences as soon as they looked at that graphic. That's something that you didn't see a lot of in that time period yet, although it's a little bit more familiar to us today. Um, Infographics in Mm -hmm. journalism and all kinds of stuff, especially now related to COVID. Um, She had a a good sense of how to use aspects of aesthetics and design um, as rhetorical techniques to contribute to an argument about um, the relationship between different variables. Um, And of course she had personal and professional motivations to make that argument very forcefully because she saw this clear relationship between um, factors around sanitation and living conditions of uh, military personnel during the Crimean War and mortality rates um, Mm -hmm. in a way that um, was becoming clearer to medical professionals and people in the sciences and bureaucrats at the time, but was still not very well known. So, so before we dive into some of the, the aesthetic choices that, that were included in her graph, I'm, I'm curious if you could set the stage for us a little bit. What was, the, what was this historic context of how data were, were displayed and discussed in Victorian times? Sure. Data visualization in the, the modern sense um, of the, let's say, the graphical display of, I think for our purposes, we're mostly talking about um, quantitative data, so numbers. Um, that really gets its start uh, in the modern sense in the 18th century, although there are lots of different kinds of information visualization practices throughout history. Um, so some of the, one of the, the earliest um, examples of that is the work of William Playfair, who was a Scottish economist. Um, and he, I think he has the first uses of pie charts and graphs that we know of in histograms. Um, and he was, he was displaying information about economic data. Um, and that continues to be a, one of the realms where visualization is used a lot um, throughout 
history until today is information about resources and production and consumption, those topics. Um, but although Playfair is an early example of visualization, and he published a couple of works, there's at least one, the title is escaping me right now, but um, he published some visualizations. I don't know how wide the audience was. Not very mm. wide, but, mm. you know, it, it was directed beyond um, his immediate community. Um, but his, his work is actually kind of um, an anomaly in its time period. So even though the earliest examples of data visualization start appearing in the 18th century, it's not really a widespread practice until much later going into the 19th century. And actually, in Britain, data visualization is taken up with a lot of skepticism. It's not used very widely, and it's, it's definitely not used to um, share data with public audiences until pretty late in the 19th century. Um, that's one of the ways, as well, that Florence Nightingale's visualizations are very unusual, that she created them for a fairly wide audience mm -hmm. um, that included uh, politicians and bureaucrats, um, but she also um, had in mind the wider audience that would read her report. What was the skepticism about visualizations related to? Is it just sort of like feeling like the data is not going to be served well by becoming you know, pretty or something. I, I don't, yeah. Yeah. In the British context, well, before I go into that, I will mention that in the 19th century in continental Europe, data visualization gets taken up uh, more widely across the sciences mm -hmm. and shared with more general audiences. But in the British context, the English context specifically, there's that skepticism of visualization. Um, and there's a, a couple of different facets to that, I'd say. One is wariness of making generalizations about data. So um, British statists, as they were called at the time, were very fond of tables. Very, very fond of tables. Huge tables. Uh, last spring, I went to, the, the spring before our spring of COVID, I went to um, the, the library of the Royal Statistical Society at the University of Essex, and I looked at a lot of the the publications they shared with one another um, in the 19th century. And there are these fold-out pages at the backs of a lot of these texts that are meters and meters long of tables <laughs> that just make you go cross-eyed if you look at them for long enough. It's really, it's pretty overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. But the rationale was that if you, better to include that and have every single datum itemized with specific accuracy than to have more generalized overviews where you're increasing the likelihood of error, you might be missing some important details. So that was one of the, the aspects of the skepticism. Um, and then the other is wariness of the, the sort of like affective, emotional, rhetorical power of data visualizations, um, which is also a, a something I think it's, we do well to be wary of. There are many examples throughout history, um, certainly in like more popular journalism, of data infographics being very misleading um, mm -hmm. because it, they rely so much on the force of shapes and color and like these sort of bold, often in our digital moment, very like flashy, um, exciting arguments using like 
really innovative digital dynamic techniques. But then the the actual argument, it's, it's statistical accuracy, um, where the data comes from, how it's modeled, all of that stuff. You just, you aren't even thinking about that when you're looking at these forceful, shiny graphics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that wariness of presenting modeling data in an aesthetic way is another factor, I think, in being skeptical of visualization. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to picture these meters of tables yeah. and I'm just, <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, what, what a great way to encourage no one will ever look at your work. And, and that it'll have no impact. I mean, it just seems like that's, you know, it's that that clearly wasn't a concern. I mean, like, but but or it was counterbalanced with what you said in in terms of you know feeling this obligation to include every single observation without without necessarily the summaries and the insights. Um, you know, I, you talk about this idea, the second component of the the affective potential of uh, visualizations. And I, I, I liked how you're talking about persuading audiences through this design rhetoric. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what, can, you, can you talk a little bit about what, what do you mean when you say a design rhetoric and how that's par- integrated as part of visualizations? Absolutely. Um, I think to, to answer that question, what I'm actually going to do is answer a question that I think connects to that question, which is mm-hmm. this broader question of how do data visualizations work? I, I love answering the questions that aren't asked me too, so that's very comfortable for me. <laughs> that's, that's sort of a that's a strategy we use in all of our classes, Allison. So don't don't let that secret out. <laughs> yeah, the art of answering the question you wish had been asked. Uh, it, well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for asking a better question than I did. <laughs> well, it does, and it, it does relate, um, and you'll yes, see how. Is. And I, um, so I I answer this question of how do data visualizations work from a, a humanities researcher perspective. Um, so I'm not talking about like mathematically, statistically, how does statistical modeling work? That's a realm where I have a, a smattering of knowledge, but it's it's mostly beyond me. But, um, but in the humanity sense of how data visualizations are a way of structuring information, how that process works as a form of human knowledge expression. So, okay, a, a data set, as we've talked about, is a like a mass of particulars. Um, like those tables that stretch out meter upon meter of paper, whereas a visualization is a, a generalized overview of that data. So to get from the mass of particulars to the overview, you, you're selecting one or more specific relationships in the data, maybe the relation of month to frequency of death by cholera, for example. Um, that was a, a recurring um, and pretty urgent concern in, um, in Victorian statistical analysis. Um, so then you, you model this relationship in a visual form, maybe on a Cartesian graph, so you've got the familiar X and Y graph, um, axes, or maybe a series of pie charts where you have uh, each pie is a different month and you've got cholera deaths and maybe some other related statistics, something like that. So when you're choosing a visual model and you transform the data visually, you are interpreting the data. You've looked at the whole data set, you perceive a pattern among instances, maybe a a causal or otherwise correlative relationship between variables that you think is meaningful. And then you showcase that interpretation through visualization. In effect, you're telling a story about the data. Now, just because it's a story Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's made up, but you're making a data narrative, an argument, and I'm sure this idea is familiar to, to both of you into stats and stories listeners. Um, So you're making uh, an argument saying this relationship or pattern in the data is meaningful. 
And the aesthetic and design choices that you make as part of the visualization process are important to this data narrative, to how you're telling it and how people will perceive it. The relationship between aesthetic features become uh, part of how you convey information, you know, the proportion of, the relative proportion of different figures might convey information about different quantities, that kind of thing. So those, those design choices are interpretive choices as well. Mm-hmm. Shape, color, size, spatial layout. Um, and these features are important to how audiences encounter your data narrative, whether they find it persuasive. Um, so in the sense, the design features of a data visualization are rhetorical techniques. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about data visualization with Allison Headley, a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University. So um, when I started this, we were ta- I opened it talking about you know data visualizations increasing use in all these spaces, but one place it's been used a lot, popularly, has been in journalism. And I wanted to ask you about this article you wrote um, about this about something I had not heard of called population journalism um, and its relationship to data visualization. So could you talk a little bit about, again, so what population um, journalism is, how you define it, and then what its relationship to these sorts of a particular moment in the Victorian era. So if you could talk about that a bit. Mm-hmm. I came across the first of what I learned would be many of these articles of Um, population journalism when I was um, doing a a master's degree at the University of Victoria. Someone showed me they'd been looking in copies of Pearson's monthly magazine, this illustrated magazine from the, started in the 1890s, Um, and they showed me this article with some data visualizations in it. Um, And I had no idea at that time that the Victorians um, visualized data in this way, never mind that they shared those visualizations with general audiences. And that's mm-hmm. like Pearson's magazine is, um, we'd call a miscellany. It's got all kinds of different, lots of mostly entertaining, some informative content, tons of images, fiction, all kinds of different things, including these articles about statistics um, and particularly articles visualizing and then offering a, a letterpress sort of narrative accompaniment information about populations, usually, because this is for British audiences, um, usually information about British populations, their mm-hmm. behaviors, um, their their traits, um, maybe also in comparison to populations from other nations. So it's population journalism focuses on representing the people back to themselves, but in statistical form and in visualizations that are Uh, often quite creative, not necessarily the most rigorous, I would Mm -hmm. say. Um, The the rigor is sort of, there's a trade-off there for like spectacularity um, and excitement, but the overall effect is a very striking one. These articles appear um, in a number of different popular magazines in the 1890s, and it's one of the first examples of popular data visualization. But there are, there are visualizations that are not like Nightingale's meant to be seen by politicians or policymakers, right? So it's sort of for a broad public. They're meant to be accessible, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So until this point, I'd say the, the kinds of data visualization that general audiences were most familiar with, there aren't too many different types. And it it depends on how you're defining the category of data visualization, what counts and what doesn't. You might think Mm -hmm. that a map 
A geospatial map is a data visualization. Right, right. Um, a historical timeline you might think of as a data visualization. You might not. Diagrams, those appeared often um, in different general interest publications. But in as statistical graphics, that kind of visualization, you don't see examples that are shared with general audiences very often before the very end of the century. Um, one exception is uh, weather charts. So meteorology reporting in um, an illustrated weekly called The Graphic starting in the 1890s, or pardon me, 1870s. You've got uh, line graphs showing weather data. And then later in the Times, um, in the British Times, mm -hmm. there's different kinds of visualization, things starting in the 1880s. But the statistical, the population journalism, um, a, a particularly visible case, even though it only had like a brief cultural moment. There was kind mm -hmm. of a craze for it for a little while, uh, to the point where there's even an article in um, the Strand magazine that is making fun of population journalism. <laughs> yeah, okay. so it's, I think it's called Statistics Gone Mad. <laughs> That's great. That, maybe that should be the name of your next oh. book, John. <laughs> it's great because there are um, these supposed data visualizations that present information that either is either absurd or self-evident. Things like um, the number of people in every 50 on average that have green hair, or, <laughs> and of course the number is zero, um, or the, the number of keyholes that Mr. Wilson sees when he's stumbling home from the bar, depending on how late at night he's stumbling home from. Well, the pub, not the bar. Yeah, and so you've got a visualization that's okay. just a series of like one keyhole, two keyholes, three keyholes, <laughs> no keyholes. Yeah, so the whole thing is making fun of uh, the authority of these popular data graphics and the validity of the information that they're presenting to readers. But it was information taken from the census um, and other, other governmental bodies, statistical bodies, it's important information about populations, but the way that it's being presented is, well, it's maybe not as informative as it is entertaining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, when, I, when you were, we were talking about this, I, all of a sudden I had this this image of visual clickbait in the Victorian era. Oh, yeah. You know, this is sort of a, you know, what's what's going to get you to read this article now? I mean, so so maybe maybe we're, clickbait is not a new thing. It's it's getting you into the story. I mean, you're talking about that that's a, in your in your uh, significant piece, you talked about the visual rhetoric rhetoric em being emphasized over accuracy as being part of this. I, I also was was uh, I was intrigued when when you talked about the 19th century as being the the first information the first age of information overabundance, mm. and you know as as you know that that really struck on a couple of different levels. One in that in in you sort of our current way of thinking about the the, the many ways in which data is coming at us and. You know, and, and all, all at, at much higher rates and different varieties and so on, and this old big data stories, but 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 this was sort of a different kind of big data story, which which in some ways invalidated the use of trying to use these tables. Mm -hmm. The the inadequacy of tables were kind of really the, the light was was being shined on these these tables as being insufficient for trying to describe this ever expanding pool of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's always this tension when it comes to working with what, I mean, what the Victorians thought of big, as big data sets or not, what we think of as big data, but there's always this tension in working with data between keeping a, a, a really 
close view on the particulars, on the individual cases, um, and their maybe their unique their unique contexts um, on the one hand, and then having that that higher level view on the other hand, from which you can make sense of larger patterns that might emerge, identify maybe systemic factors that are at work in some particular um, phenomenon. That's a challenge that. Uh, the Victorians grappled with and that we continue to grapple with today. And it's, I mean, it's not going away. I think that ideally we're able to look at data from multiple vantage points and understand the, the benefits and the limitations of having each perspective, you know, what it can and can't tell us about um, some particular question that we have. But that's not always easy. And two, it's it's particularly challenging for general audiences. So much of what I focus on in my research is how uh, statisticians, other people and bodies that gathered data, how they shared data with, with general publics, familiarize them with this idea of gathering and analyzing data as a, a technique for um, building important knowledge about societies, building policies, um, and, and better understanding the world. Some people thought maybe even fully and comprehensively understanding the world. Um, and that's, there's a question of how, how, to, how to educate readers, uh, general audiences, publics in data literacy. That is an important question. I think related to being able to understand data up close and then from a, a higher level view. And that, that's also a question that has not gone away and will continue to be important. As you, you were just talking about data literacy. In your significance piece, you talked a little bit about visualization literacy. Mm. So what, what is it that you mean by visualization literacy? It connects back to those design techniques that have rhetorical power and this idea that uh, a visual model is, is an argument or is part of an argument about data. So being able to identify as a, a, a reader looking at a data visualization, being able to identify how that model contributes to um, the, the meaning you're interpreting, um, the, the message that's being conveyed about the data um, in really specific ways, being able to understand why, um, well, let's say in the, in the case of uh, Florence Nightingale's uh, polar area charts, like why the shape of the visualization is important to the meaning of it or why the colors are important. Being able to I guess sort of explicate the visual characteristics in that way. That's what I mean by visualization literacy. And that's something that I think general publics have to a varying varying degrees. Yeah. Um, we can all look at uh, the, the color palette of an infographic and get some sense of, you know, if it's lots of things done in red and black mm -hmm. and that's very forceful and there's a sense of, well, in, in Western culture, a kind of maybe violence or passion to that. Whereas if it's a lot of, sort of pastel colors, maybe it's sort of fun. And presumably the, the subject matter of that visualization wouldn't be um, criminal statistics or something. Right. Right. But in terms of being able to analyze more particularly how uh, uh, data, a, a graphic design maker or a data visualizer's choices um, shape your experience of the data, um, that's something that requires a little bit more practice and, and that I think should be part of, um, a, I'd say, like a, a general education, along with, I'd say, more education about 
data and statistics in general at like a, a secondary school level. So you're not, you're going to find an argument for me. I was going to say, point. I was like, I think that's a good place to end because John is going to spike the football on that. Though, I think. <laughs> that's, that's drop the mic at that point, right? You know, that's, you like... yeah, that's right. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thanks, Allison. Thank you for having thanks. me. It's been a pleasure to talk about my work with you. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.